We're going to be, you can open, if you brought your Bibles, you can open them to um, 2 Kings chapter 3. And um, <clears throat> oh, good. Okay. Yeah, 2 Kings chapter 3. I was just noticed what I thought was a mistake. Sorry. Um, 2 Kings chapter 3. We're going to cover that whole, this whole chapter tonight. And the, at first, I'm going to confess, when I first sat down with the text, I thought about covering chapter 3 and 4 and maybe even going into 5 uh, all tonight and just kind of doing more kind of summary of these events that took place. But then I got into chapter 3 and I thought, you know, it would be good to just slow down here and to cover a passage that I think is actually pretty difficult and strange. And it's good for us to slow down and ask, what is really happening here? What is this that we're looking at? And why is this here? And so before we do, let's just take a minute to review where we've been. Remember, Elijah has gone. He, he has passed from the scene and God basically told Elijah that he's not going to die. He's going to be taken up bodily. And Elisha, his disciple, was with him. Now, who is Elisha? Do we remember? He's a prophet, right? He's going to take over after Elijah's gone. But more than just a prophet, Elisha is one arm of the three total arms that are going to overturn the house of Ahab. Ahab is a wicked dude, and he's, he did some bad things. He's dead now, but his sons have reigned on the throne. We've already seen one son. We're going to summarize his death tonight and then quickly get into his second son, who's now on the throne, and we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about him. But Elisha is one arm that's designed to come in and overturn the house of Ahab and undo the evil uh, house of Ahab to bring in basically yet another evil king in the northern kingdom. And so, um, but that it's part of the punishment for Ahab. Remember what Ahab did. Obviously, he married Jezebel. She's awful. And then she, remember, she uh, took guys, his neighbor's land, basically just rigged him up on charges and then had him killed right there in front of everybody as if it was legitimate. And Ahab took his property. And so, for that, the whole house of Ahab has to come down, and Elisha is one arm of three people that are going to end up bringing that down. And so he's a prophet of the Lord, and that's what the Lord is going to use him to do. Now, um, once Elijah is removed, let me go to that next one. Robert, help me out. There it goes. All right. Um, once Elijah is removed, Elisha begins his ministry. And how does he do that? Well, he, he's on the other side of the Jordan River, and he's got to cross back into the land. And when he does, the way they went across the Jordan to begin with, with Elijah, Elijah took his coat and put it on the water. The water parted, and they were just able to walk across on dry land. Elisha asked for that double portion of Elijah, Elijah's ministry, and because he saw Elijah taken up, the Lord granted that request for him. So when he crossed, when he's going back to the river, how does he cross? Well, he does exactly what Elijah did. He took off Elijah's coat that he now has, slaps the water with it. Where is God? And we find out that the answer to that question that he asks, where is Elijah's God, 
it's right there with you, Elisha. So waters part again. He comes back over and he begins to validate his ministry through really what we see is three signs. First, the sons of the prophets begin to acknowledge that Elisha has the ministry of Elijah because we see him cross back over the river. That's one. And then we also see Elisha able to bless. So he goes into the land of Jericho, which had been cursed all the way back to Joshua's day. And the water is bad. And so he is able to bless the town of Jericho and turn the water good. This is just a, a miracle. There's, we're going to see a lot of miracles Elisha does. Um, so he does that. And then the third thing he does is some young kids mock him for having bald head. And he sends some she bears after him and just and attacks him. So don't call people bald. That's all I'm saying. Uh, it's, it's the lesson at the end of it. Uh, no, it's, it's disrespecting a prophet of the Lord. And, and for a number of reasons that we talked about last uh, two weeks ago, uh, but they mock him and Elijah has the, uh, Elisha has the ability to bless Jericho and curse as well. And so that is pretty much the typical signs that the Lord is with this person. And so we see that ministry validated. Now, Elijah has been taken, and the question that has to be asked is, where is Elijah's, Elijah's God? And we see that through Elisha, God remains with him. So uh, his prophets are gone, but Yahweh remains faithful throughout it. That's kind of what we took, what we understand from chapters 1 and 2. Now we come into chapter 3, and there's some interesting, there's an interesting turn of events. Now, remember, you, you have to kind of put yourself back in uh, sort of an ancient mindset or put yourself in the position of maybe like a ruler or something like that. Your, your job really is to expand your kingdom. That's the goal. You want to expand the borders. You want to take in other countries. They're going to become your servants. That's how you gain wealth and prosperity, particularly in the ancient world. But that's probably true even today. We've seen military advancement on a number of fronts from a number of different countries as they seek to expand their border. This is how they grow their wealth. You have minerals, you have whatever that we need. You produce these goods, we want those. And so we're gonna conquer you with our military and you're gonna give us goods and services. All right, all that's all well and good, I suppose. But when you lose power, that is when all of your vassals, that's what those people are called, those people that owe you tribute, those are called vassals. When you lose power, all those vassals start running for the hills, right? They start scattering. Well, that's exactly what we see. Now, Ahab, for all of his evil, Ahab was a pretty powerful guy. What it seems like in the Bible, he's, he's not the powerful one. It's really his wife. It's probably the powerful one, or she's the power broker in the whole situation. But nevertheless, Ahab's kingdom expands, and he's a pretty wealthy dude, all right? But then he dies. And so what's going to happen when his sons take over with all that wealth? And what's going to happen to all the vassals and things like that that are paying tribute to the northern kingdom? Well, not only does Ahab die, but Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, Remember, he takes over for about a year. I mean, not long at all. And he's walking through, he's walking on his roof or someplace, and he steps on some lattice work, some sheetrock, basically. 
and goes straight through. I mean, this has happened to people, right? You're in your attic. You forget that your flooring is necessary and you just step right off of it, right through the sheetrock, except Ahaziah falls pretty much to his death. He doesn't fall immediately to his death. First, he is broken from head to toe. And then he suffers for a little while. And then he dies. All right. So Ahaziah is dead. I think it's two years. If you look at the back of your your worksheet, the very last page, I have the kings listed over there left and right, the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And then in the middle, I ha- I, we're going to build a list of the prophets as they have ministered to the northern and southern kingdoms. Now, just as a reminder, remember the kingdom of Israel is no longer just one kingdom. The kingdom of Israel is now separated into two parts, where ten tribes stuck with the northern side. That is what we're going to call Israel. And two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, stuck with the southern kingdom. We're going to call that Judah. Okay, so Judah is the legitimate kingdom. That's the line of David. That's where Jesus comes from eventually. That's the legitimate kingdom. The northern kingdom, all of its evil, basically all all the time. If you got a northern king, and you you can just pretty much guarantee he's going to be evil. All right? So the northern kingdom is like 10 of the tribes. It's the vast majority of Israel. They're up north, and they're following Ahaziah. He falls, plummets to his death pretty much. And he's dead. Now, is this how God is going to overturn the house of Ahab? No. Turns out Ahaziah has a brother, and his name is Joram. Now, to make matters really confusing, there is a Joram in the north and a Joram in the south. And both of them are going to be on the throne at the same time. So it gets really weird and really confusing. And not only that, they're both referred to as Joram, and they're also both referred to as Jehoram. So you will see it sometimes Joram. You will see it sometimes Jehoram. They're not the same person as each. Well, there's two different ones, basically is what I'm trying to say. All right. So he falls through some lattice work and he dies and his brother is going to take the throne. And somewhere along the way, either right before he falls, maybe it's right after Ahab's death or right as he falls through the lattice work or somewhere in the midst of that transition of power, or perhaps it's even right after he dies, we are told that the kingdom of Moab is ready to rebel against the northern kingdom. We're not paying you tribute anymore because... You have your problems to deal with of your own, and you're not going to pay attention to us. So, say la vie. This is their time to exit. Okay, stage left. And so, we see that already in 2 Kings 1 1 and 2, the first passage in our passage list here on the worksheet. It says, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Okay, that's the first little thing. And then, you know, Ahaziah fell through the lattice work and all that. But then in 2 Kings 3, so the author of 2 Kings has sort of left that little piece, dropped that little nugget at the very beginning, and then left it. And now he's coming back to it at the beginning of chapter 3. And he says, In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother. He put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. So there's still some foreign gods that are being allowed to be worshipped in the land. And he's also pursuing idolatry in his own. That's basically pursuing the the sins of the son of of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
Now, um, what we what we don't know is obviously at what point exactly Moab rebels, but it's somewhere in that in that transition of power. And they're upset. They don't want to pay tribute to Israel anymore, and so they leave. Um, now, obviously, this is interesting because here is an evil king. He's part of a northern kingdom, and he's not quite as bad as Jezebel and Ahab. Why? What do you say in the text? This is for you to answer. Why? Why is he not quite as bad? He did. He did away with some of the idol worship. So he got rid of some of the temples, but not quite all. So there is a, a, a degree of evil that we're looking at here, of which he is not totally in line with his parents. But he's still pretty evil. And so Joram, the second son of Ahab, he says, the narrator says he's evil, but he's not quite as evil as his mother and his father. Um, he is, he, because he tears down the Baal worship in favor of something like a Yahweh worshiping cult. So it's not quite Judaism. It's not quite sending your people down to the temple. Remember the sin of Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Remember the sin of Jeroboam. It's what he mentions there. He still committed those sins. Remember what it was. He put up temples in the land so that the people couldn't go down into the southern kingdom and worship. Remember, these are two different kingdoms. And the temple in Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. Jeroboam set up temples in the northern kingdom for people to worship something like Yahweh so that they wouldn't go down into, into Jerusalem and worship there because, hey, you might get down there and you might like it, right? This is the DMZ zone. You can't cross it, right? The border between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so he creates this something of a Yahweh-worshiping cult, which basically means he combined a lot of religions, something that looked like Judaism, and had a lot of other influences in, in there, probably like ball worship as well. And so he took these you know, measures to tear down the statues to Baal that his father had erected and his mother had erected, but that hardly translates to any kind of religious reform. So no sympathy do we grant to this guy at all. All right, let's just get that out of the way. Now, he took some uh, immediate measures once he realized um, Moab was, uh, was, you know, wandering off the reservation. He takes some immediate measures to bring Moab back in line. And who does he reach out to first? He reaches out to the king in the south who goes by the name of Jehoshaphat. We know Jehoshaphat, don't we? For those of you who have been here for several weeks now, we know who Jehoshaphat is. He's a pretty solid guy or what? How do we feel about Jehoshaphat? Do you remember? Give me a temperature check. How are we doing? How is Jehoshaphat? How do we feel about him? He's, he's, he's okay. All right. Why is he pretty okay? Why is he good? Why are there, there's a good side to Jehoshaphat. What is that? Yeah, he, he desires religious reform, right? He has not only sought out the voice of a prophet, and he understands the need for that in the land, and as they go into battle, he, he knows that we need to hear from a prophet first. 
And he's also instituted some religious reform in the southern kingdom where he's torn down a lot of the high places. He has sent priests throughout the land to basically teach the people the law and things like that. Those are some good things. The bad side of Jehoshaphat is that even when he gets a voice from a prophet of the Lord, he doesn't really listen. It doesn't seem to influence his decision. Because as we find out, it seems that his desire is really that he doesn't like this whole division between north and south. He seems to want to merge the kingdoms back together again. This is a huge problem, though. Who divided the kingdoms? You remember? Who divided the kingdoms? Softball. It looks like it was Solomon, but it was God that did it, right? And I understand where you're going with that because Solomon was the one responsible for the initial sin that ended up kind of dropping the pebble off the hill that sort of rolled down and collected steam. But God divided the nations as a punishment. So if God divided you, is it inherently good and wonderful to try to unite what God has divided? Absolutely not. So basically, he wants to bring people back together. Can't we all just get along? And so anytime the northern kingdom, which is evil, comes to him and asks him for some help, he volunteers in spite of what the prophets of God actually tell him. Because his desire ultimately is, he's, I guess, kind of a people pleaser is sort of what it is. So what happens? Well, Ahaziah, uh, I mean, sorry, Joram sees that Moab is rebelling. Joram can't go down there and just kick Moab back into line. What does he got to do? Well, he's got to build a coalition first. Let me get some military from other people. We can go back down in there and we can, we can take them out. All right. So what happens? But Jehoshaphat joins the fight. Let's look at that in verses 4 and following of 2 Kings 3. Now, Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder. And he had to deliver the king of Israel a 100,000 lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab, Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. Uh, so King Jor- Jehoram, so here it's Jehoram in our worksheet, it's Joram, just depends on where you read it. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria, that's the capital city of the north, at that, at that time, and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, by which way shall we march? Jehoram answered, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Uh, Remember, so keep them straight. Moab is the one that rebels. They're wanting to walk by the wilderness of Edom. And you're going to find out a reason why in just a second. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. Who have they picked up along the way? Not just the king of Judah, but they've also picked up now the king of Edom. King of Edom is probably also a vassal to either the south or the north, or maybe both. And so they pick him up along the way. Hey, come on, you're fighting with us. He doesn't have much of a choice in the matter. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings, speaking of himself and the two others, to give them into the hand of Moab. 
And Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire of the Lord? Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went uh, down to him. And Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your, uh, of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. That's cold right there. But now bring me a musician, naturally. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry steam bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that steam bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, uh, so, so that you shall drink you, your livestock and your animals. This is a light thing in the, in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Okay, pretty strange little prophecy here we've got and a little strange scene that we've got here as well. Um, we're going to look at the uh, map I think is next of, well, it was, there it is. All right, Robert, you can follow me with a mouse for those that are the thousands watching at home. Um, all right. So Joram is up here. All right. Right now, Jehoshaphat. Did I lose my? <gasps> I think I lost my pointer. No fear. I have a backup. I think. Oh, no. I... Have I lost that one, too? Oh, it's barely there. There you go. You see it? All right. We see it. Okay. It's a, it's a puny little, it's a puny little laser. Okay. Uh, Samaria is up here. This is the Northern kingdom. So Israel right here, the Northern kingdom. Okay. So Jehoram is here in the capital city of Samaria, goes down with Jehoshaphat down past the Dead Sea, all the way up through the land of Edom. And they end up here in Moab, uh, right up here. So they pick up the King of Edom down here and they come up here to the land of Moab. Oh, come on. Okay. All right. I think it's just the distance, but I'll replace this battery. Have no fear. You better believe that will be true. Um, and I'll get it back next time. But anyway, so they go down south, they pick up the king of Edom, and then they head back north, and they head to the river of uh, the border between Edom and Moab. And so uh, the Zered River. Now, um, you can... Um, you can see, I, I, the only reason I put that map up there uh, of Edom and Moab is just so that you can get an idea of where these lands are located, uh, just to the east and a little bit to the south, Edom being down in the very, in the very south. Uh, who, is, who is Edom? Do we remember who Edom is? Where'd they come from? Yeah, this is Esau's tribe. Okay, so all these people are connected to the family. Go ahead. Yeah, it looks like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you could go up through the northern route and come down through the south, right? 
Uh, but then how would you get Edom along with you, first of all, and look like a really imposing military force coming in? Um, so that's one thing. And then it's probably that if you were to go into Moab, if they were looking for a fight, so imagine Moab has just rebelled against Israel. So they're not expecting that that would come without a fight, right? So probably the border that they're looking for, uh, Israel would be up on the Northern side. And so it's kind of like sneaking in the back door a little bit at least. Um, and so they go to basically the, between Edom and Moab. Now, do you notice what they didn't do? in this whole process, but it, but it went right over your head and you didn't really even think about it. They got together an army and they, they marched down there to, to, uh, to Moab, right? They picked up the king of Edom, picked up the king of Judah. What, what did they not do? What is typical when the children of God, of, of Israel, go into battle, what do they typically do before they go into battle? What do they do? Yeah, consult the Lord. You notice it's absent right? They don't do that at all. In fact, they, were, they did that earlier on under Jehoshaphat's rule. He was the one that said, should we really go into battle? Maybe we could ask for a prophet. Is there a prophet to be had? And Ahab says, yeah, I mean, there is a prophet, but he always tells me what I don't want to hear. And I, don't, I hate asking for his, you know, his word because it, it, it's always bad news. And so Jehoshaphat is like, well, let's go ahead and get him. And Micah comes in. They bring in Micah. And Micah, sure enough, tells him bad news. And Ahab's like, I told you, this guy never tells me good news. And so uh, Jehoshaphat was the one that brought that to Ahab's mind. We should probably get a prophet of the God to come in and tell us. This time, no word whatsoever. So it really raises the question in the passage because you're not really looking for it. And that's why I think this passage is a little bit weird to walk through because you're not really expecting that. They just, they go into battle and you don't really think much of it. Okay, they're going into battle. It's not until they get down into some difficulty that then they raise the question, is there a prophet anywhere around here that we can ask? Maybe we could see. Because you notice that Joram gets down there and he realizes once they get caught in the weeds, I think maybe God is against us. All of a sudden he becomes a theologian and he's convicted, maybe. But it, it raises the question, why didn't you do this to begin with? Why didn't you consult Elisha to begin with and get the Lord's blessing like Israel has historically always done? No, you just sought to go after Moab yourself. Well, there's going to be some little sleight of hand and some very strange stuff that happens as a result of that. So uh, that we're going to see. And I'm going to work through the rest of this. Um, yeah, let's read the passage in 2 Kings 3, 20 to 27. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the, con- the, till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, All who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up to the board, up at the border. Uh, And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, uh, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab to the spoil. But when they came to the camp of Israel... which is a really strange battle cry, by the way. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities 
and on every good piece of land, uh, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only the stones were left in Kir Harasheth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took him seven. He, he took with him seven hundred swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came a great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own lands. All right. What a strange little conclusion to a very strange little story of a battle. So what happens here? We've we've read it. Now I want to kind of unpack it and look at some significant things that you should draw your attention to. First is obvious, or that I've just pointed out, probably not so obvious until you get to the end, that they don't consult the Lord at all. And it's not until later into the journey that they do. And so we we start to see kind of a, a... parable of how this is going to go, or this sort of turns into a little bit of a parable. So once Joram and the three kings are stuck in verse 9 and 10, Joram discovers that all of a sudden he does believe in the sovereignty of God and now desires his counsel. And so he asks, is there, uh, you know, is there somewhere we can go? Or one of them asks, is there somewhere we can go? And they figure out Elisha uh, is in the area and just as chance would have it, And he wants to go down and meet with him. But do you notice what happens as a response when they go to meet Elisha? Does he he love Joram? No, not at all. He wouldn't spit on him if he was on fire, as the expression goes. Uh, And the reason is because, why? God has no regard for the northern kingdom at this point. Ahab's line is all going to be overturned. Every single one of them are wicked. And so because of that, Joram is just a stand-in for the, in the meantime until Elisha gets up and anoints his crew who are going to end up overturning the house of Ahab. And so he's a nobody. He's of no consequence. And the only reason God actually moves in this case is why? Because of Jehoshaphat. That's it. Now, why would he move because of Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat's here with Joram, he's partnering with Ahab. He gave his daughter in marriage to Ahab, or his son to marry her daughter, their daughter. Why, why would God regard Jehoshaphat? He seems to be complicit in this. Why is that? Any ideas? Thoughts? Opinions? Persuasions? Convictions? Any ideas? Thoughts? Why? Why would God have regard for Jehoshaphat right now? Because of David. That's it. Because of David. Now, Jehoshaphat is a righteous person, but why does God hold Jehoshaphat or the kings of the south of any importance when often they're as wicked as the north? Because his name is on the line. He made a promise to David, and he aims to keep his promise. So Jehoshaphat... Though he's down there with Joram, though he has committed sin, Yahweh is true to his word. And so he's going to maintain faithfulness to Jehoshaphat. And he's the only one he has any regard for. Notice he doesn't say that he's, he's crazy about his actions right now. He doesn't condone everything that Jehoshaphat's doing. He's saying, look, 
If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't listen to any of you jokers. But because he's here, we'll talk, all right? So he's willing to engage them for just a little bit of a time, okay? Now, what does he say about, you know, the, the, what is the reason why they think they're in trouble? Because they've marched down there into, into Moab without consulting the Lord at all, and they've run out of water. And what they thought, well, we'll just drink out of the streams, and it turns out the streams are dried up. It's a dry riverbed. And so they're like, well, obviously God's done this to us. He brought us down here, and now we're out of water, and we can't feed our livestock or anybody. So what are we going to do? Well, we got to consult the, the prophet of the God. And it's because of this that uh, he says, look, to rehydrate you and your army, this is Elisha speaking, to rehydrate you guys, that's an easy task for the Lord. That's no big deal. Now, when he says no big deal, have you ever tried to make water come out of the ground with no rain or no wind? Right. So Elisha says, look, no wind, no rain, no wind's going to come upon the land, which means no storm clouds are going to blow in. No rain's going to come upon the land. Water's just going to come up from the ground. And that's exactly what happened. Now, don't seek to try to explain this any other way than it's just a divine miracle from the hand of a prophet. All right. That's exactly what happened. And, and so water comes up from the ground and is able to feed or to water, as it were, their livestock. Now, he also gives them a prophecy and he tells them Moab is going to be given into your hand. And he tells them how it's going to happen. You're going to be able to cut down all the good trees. You're going to move into all the big cities. You're going to throw stones in all the good pieces of property. Now, what is that about? Throwing stones into all the good pieces of property? What does that even mean? Well, it, you can imagine like somebody plays a prank on somebody by putting just piles of confetti in their office, right? What do you have to do? Well, you got to remove the confetti, all right? So when they take stones and they throw them on the land of, of Moab, remember they've got sheep and they've got rams, right, that they provide wool. What's going to happen to those sheep and rams if they don't have land to graze in because it's filled with rocks? They're going to die, right? Everything's going to perish without good land. So they have good land. Now they don't because rocks are now in the middle of their property. All right. So, but the point is that after Elisha gives this prophecy to them, point by point, the prophecy is fulfilled, except you'll notice one glaring thing. It doesn't quite come about the way you thought it would anyway. He said, I'm going to give Moab into your hands. Your livestock are going to be watered. You're going to move in. You're going to be able to take over the cities, all the big cities. You're going to be able to destroy the good pieces of property. You're going to fell all the big trees. And they do that. What doesn't exactly come about? They don't capture Moab again. You notice that? He tells them, I'm going to give Moab into your hands. But they don't <coughs> get Moab at the end. Why? Why don't they get Moab at the end? Do you remember what happens in the last verse that causes them not to get Moab in the end? Because what? What promise? No, no, no. Look, look, look at the passage. Look at the passage. Look at the very last verse. Then he took his what oldest son. Who is, he? Who is this? This is the king of Moab, right? Takes his oldest son. His name is Mesha, by the way takes his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. 
So what does he do? He killed his son. Sacrificed him right on top of the wall. So Israel's looking at this going, oh my word, this guy killed his only son and sacrificed his son. That's something that only the most heinous people like the Canaanites before them did. That's not, not something Israel would do. Well, they actually did do it. And they will read about that later. But, but the point is, that's not something on the norm that anybody does. That's craziness. To sacrifice your own son uh, on the wall, that's awful. And what happens after that? It says, there came a great wrath against Israel. And what happened? They withdrew. They ran. So what didn't they do here? Was it that the Lord didn't give Moab into their hand? No, he did. What didn't they do? They were petrified and they ran. They're petrified the king of Moab sacrificed his own son. And now the army is, you know, going crazy because they've curried the favor of their God by sacrificing the heir apparent to the throne. I mean, can you imagine how sick and depraved that is? Now they do that, and they start whipping up a frenzy because, oh my goodness, they've sacrificed their son to the gods, and now their god is surely riled at this point. Surely they've gotten their god's attention, is the point. Go back just to 1 Kings 17, if you remember, where you don't have to turn there, but remember where Elijah is on top of, the, of Mount Carmel, and he's there with the, the prophets of Baal, and they're, they built their altar, and they're trying to get their Baal's attention. And what do they do? Do you remember? They dance all day around the altar, and there's no attention being paid to them. You remember what they resort to next? They start cutting themselves, and they start bleeding everywhere. The point is to try to wake up the God who they're trying to get their attention. And so the way you wake them up is you get, quote-unquote, the way you wake them up is to get more and more extreme. That's why Elijah says to them, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe he's sleeping. That's the reason you can't wake him up. You're doing all these things that would normally get his attention, and he's not responding to you by lighting the altar on fire. Maybe it's because he's going to the bathroom. So what does is, what is Moab resort to here? But they take the son and they sacrifice him. So let me get to the next blank here because it's child sacrifice. So on the verge of, of victory, right as Moab is about to fall into their hands, Moab rouses a false god's attention by sacrificing a kid, and Israel believes it. Do you see that? You get that, what's happening? Israel believes it. This is how essentially wicked Israel has become, and Judah along with them is that they, first of all, don't seek the word of the Lord. Then they get the word of the Lord and they get affirmation. They are going to fall into your hands. And instead of believing the word of the Lord, they see what this company of people have done and they believe that their God now is awakened and is able to defeat us. And so they turn and run. So the question really then becomes again, how much is the word of God worth? Well, at first in the story, it's not worth much. 
because we'll walk into whatever would stand in before us and in this case a battle with Moab not ever considering what his thoughts on the matter really are and then once we get caught in the thick of it and our livestock are dying of thirst now we might want to consider what the Lord thinks on this whole deal well then we get his blessing and we have his word and so we walk back into battle and we become convinced again that he's against us so it turns out that in the north and the south the word of God is just not worth much to them so how do we make sense of what Elisha says Elisha says I'll give Moab into your hand. Now, we have to remember that prophets don't control the prophetic word that comes to them. Um, Elisha does this really weird thing where he says, Jehoshaphat is the only one that, you know, makes me even want to talk to you guys. And so he brings in a musician, (laughs) which is, that's strange. But musicians often accompany prophetic words. We see this uh, on a number of occasions in 1 Samuel with Saul, who brings in a musician, and then they begin to prophesy. So music and prophecy sometimes go together in the Old Testament. And so it seems as though uh, there's a little worship service that's conducted right there, bring in a musician, and Elisha communicates with the Lord and and gets a response uh, during the musical interlude. Let's call it that. And, uh, but, and, and God tells him that, that he's going to give Moab into his hands. But in the end, it doesn't really happen. Moab doesn't fall into their hands. So we have to understand first, Elisha's not in control of the word he gets. He, he gets what the Lord tells him. And we see point for point, everything is going exactly according to plan, right? So the other thing we have to, we have to understand from this passage is not just that Elisha told them what the Lord told him and he's not responsible for the word, but also that the children of Israel as they marched in had every reason to believe that it was going to come about that Moab was going to fall into their hands. Why? Because the riverbed filled up with water because their livestock were obviously fed. They were able to march into the cities. They were able to fell the trees. They were able to throw the stones on the land. Everything was according to plan. But when it came to the final deal, that's where, when it came to a rubber meeting the road, trust God or die, they chose death. They just didn't believe that the Lord was actually going to carry through this word. Um, so their failure is to believe in the word of God. Uh, I, I wonder uh, if, you, if you could see any parallels between our own lives as we go about this world, I'll be the first to tell you I'm guilty of, of this on a number of fronts. We just do things. And prayer goes all the way into the back, takes a back seat of our life. Uh, how frequently do we stop for just a second and go, wait a second, is the Lord in this? Does he want me here? Is this where he wants me spending my time? Is this what he really wants me doing? Is this what's best for our family? Is this what is best to lead our family into the fear and admonition of the Lord, like he's commanded us to do? Classic example of this is the schedules. I I have a young family, obviously, young kids, eight, six, and four. 
And one thing we, we noticed, we just signed the boys up for baseball not that long ago. And uh, they, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's fun to watch your kids play sports and to do all of this. And um, we realized very quickly that, boy, it's a lot to manage, though. That very quickly, every night becomes occupied. We were a family, and we still are as best we can, that likes to, we're all going to sit down at the table, we're all going to eat dinner together, no TVs on, no nothing, we're all going to sit down and we're going to talk. And afterwards, we're going to do family worship typically or something like that. And at first, it was great because the boys were practicing on the same day, they had games on the same days, and it was, it was awesome. Okay, so everything was, everything was working according to plan. And then all of a sudden, one team was like, well, we actually want to practice on this day instead. And, and so now there's, that's, so now it's four days a week that you end up, your time is occupied. And before long, your whole schedule is dominated, you know, by this. And so it, it took us kind of realizing, look, if we're going to raise these kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, we're going to have to be really strict about the schedule that we, where we occupy our, our family's time and where we don't occupy our family's time. Dinner time is really important for us. Certain days of the week are super important for us. Family worship is really important for us. And so some of those things are priorities for us. And b- quickly, before even considering, where's the Lord in all of this? You occupy your family's schedule. It's filled to the brim. You can't get anywhere else because we've got all of these other things that we have to do. And I wonder what would happen if we just stopped and said, wait a second, is the Lord in this though? If, if he were to place the values for our family on a chart, where would this particular thing fall? It may not be baseball, maybe a number of other things, for you, but where, where would this particular thing fall? It could be a number of different things, how I spend my money. It could go, it could be, you could literally ask this about everything and we should. And that's the point, right? Is that, is that we should engage in that kind of, scrutiny over our life what areas is the lord really in what is he is he blessing just because your schedules may be occupied with something like baseball doesn't make it inherently bad but the question is do we sit down and stop and think how are we going to raise these kids or grant support the grandkids or whatever in the fear and admonition of the lord when doing this right can be done but how are we going to do that um how am I going to spend my money wisely so that it, it, it puts, you know, the Lord's values in, you know, as, as, a, as a priority in our lives? And before long, we get into all of these things and we're stuck in the middle of something and we go, well, where is God? Right? <laughs> and it's a, it's a small wonder we do that because it, there was no point along the way that you ever thought about him until you get into trouble and then all of a sudden you become a theologian, Right? Um, but then there's another part of this story that I think needs to be looked at too. It's just the last thing here. Um, what option does the idolatrous man have to get attention from his God, but resort to extreme measures? Um, I think that this passage, this happening, this event in human history is also God's mercy to the northern and southern kingdoms where he is getting their attention. 
It's almost as if he is pleading, oh, Israel, do you realize the treasure that you have in God? You never have to resort to things like this, sacrificing your child. Where do you get that? But Deuteronomy 4.7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon What I'm amazed by is even in spite of my dullness and insensitivity to the Lord and His desires, often insensitivity to the Lord and His desires for my life, I have never found Him unfaithful to me. Ever. And Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, they're, they're in the middle of it. And Elisha says, look, this is a light thing. Feeding your livestock, this is easy. It, it further drives that little thorn into their side of going, why didn't you consult me to begin with? This would have been so easy if you had just talked to me or cared anything about me. Um, we see in our, in our families, in our, uh, in our own lives, just this lethargy, a laziness spiritually um, to, to really bring our families under, under his word and, and to teach our kids. And, um, you know, over the years, this is probably an aside, but over the years, I've seen this just in the church where... Families have placed more and more onus on the church to be the ones that disciple their kids. And so when their kids grow up and they're in the youth program and they're in 11th grade or 12th grade and they're not Christians, the parents start getting really panicky and that's when they start talking and griping about youth ministers and stuff like that. And I'm not just talking about here, but just this happens literally at every church. Literally every church in America is has this discussion. Every pastor in America pretty much has this same discussion. And it's typically parents who their kids have been, have been raised and they're, they're panicking because they're about to graduate from high school. They're about to go into college and they're not Christians. And so they look around for someone to blame and it lands on the church. Well, if only the youth program was this, if only they did this, if only they did this in the church, if only there were more people or more friends or whatever in the church, then, then my kid would be a Christian. And it seems like it never comes back to us in our homes. The number one discipler of children is parents. Amen. And you have to get that. If, you're in, if you have kids who have kids, that's fine. You know, if, you have, if you're about to have kids, you don't have kids yet, or maybe you're thinking about having kids or whatever, you have to understand this is a priority, has to be a priority for every Christian to raise their kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord. It is your responsibility. It is not anyone else's. And when you get to the gates of heaven, stand in judgment before the Lord, you're going to be held accountable for how you raise them. You. So these things have to be priorities. You have to consider these things. But the good news is 
that no matter how many mistakes you've made or how you've missed it, he's very near. He's right there next to you. And you, you cry out to him, you call out to him, you ask him for help. And it's, it's, he's, who has a God as near as ours? I mean, what does he say in Deut- Deuteronomy 4, 7? For what great nation, or you could even translate that to the Christian, what, what Christian or what, what worshiper of any God out there is there that has a God so near to him as the Lord our God is to us whenever and wherever we call upon him? Now, in Christ, we've seen that even exponentially more so, that he's actually sent him to us to die for us. So, you know, the, I, I think this, this passage, though it's very strange and it has a lot of different interesting things and what do we really make of this? It's a parable of, for us. I mean, it's a real event that happened in human history. I don't mean to make, make it sound like it didn't happen, but it's a parable for us of just what happens when you lead your life without any concern for the Lord's priorities in it. So um, thoughts, comments, questions, anything? Probably pretty rambly. Sorry if that was. I, I have a, can you hear me? Yeah, Doug, go ahead. Um, I was just wondering if you would comment on a few things that kind go of ahead. bothered me about um, the pilgrimage we're going through. So I, I understand that it was God's sovereign plan to split the kingdom, but the trigger event was the son of Solomon imposing a hardship on the people and they rebelled and they formed the Northern kingdom. Now, once they had formed the Northern kingdom, they had no hope because they had, didn't have access to temple sacrifice. And the idea of participating in the temple sacrifice so their belief that there would be a Messiah that would come at some point, and he would be the sacrifice for their sin. Sure. So let's suppose that you're Joram and you're the son of the king who dies, and, and so you take over. So what are what are your options? And then if you look at Jehoshaphat, he was nothing but a a, a person who believed in believed in political expediency. He would make alliances. Uh, it was not at all a spiritual man. It didn't was, in my opinion, was not a believer. And so, and then, and then, but your the comment on saving um, Jehoshaphat because he was an offspring of David. Well, there was the curse of Jeconiah that was a curse on the house of David. And, um, and then of course, we're not to Jeconiah yet. No, no, I, I know. But then but then you've got, I, I, I agree, I, we're not there yet. But um, you got the you got Edom, and Edom was cursed because they, pers- they, they were harsh to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness, and, and they right. were cursed, and eventually they were wiped out for that. Sure. So, so um, I mean, there's just, if you look at it from a human perspective, I look at it from Joram's point of view, and he's without hope. I mean, he just, he, as a leader of the northern tribe and the southern tribe, would not let them participate in temple worship, which they needed in order to point to the Messiah. And right. then you had the evil kings, the Jehoshaphat, that were simply blessed because God chose to bless them. Right. And so you got this sovereignty of God who, um, I mean, we're ne- never uh, righteous because of our acts, but it's almost like there's no hope for the people in the northern kingdom. And 
and, and so I feel, you know, kind of like they're underdogs. I kind of have a tendency to feel for the underdogs. And <laughs> um, I had just my personality and, and yeah. these people that were blessed with the, um, with, with the, the temple worship and the oracles of God and all these things that Paul talks about, they didn't appreciate it. Uh, but yet um, God saved some. Yeah. Of them. But what, what I think is the clear implication of um, Jeroboam and his sin is that he's blocking the, his people from the Northern kingdom from actually getting to Jerusalem. And that I think is the implication of that sin that he commits back in first Kings is that's precisely what he does. And so from God's perspective, it's one thing to be a separate kingdom, but you have, you have to remember that God divided the kingdoms and he set them up this way. And he even appointed the king to be on the throne. And so when, when he did that, his, um, his desire was not for his people to go to Jerusalem, for, for his people to be stopped from going to Jerusalem. And when they were, um, the reason they were stopped from going to Jerusalem is because Jeroboam was afraid he was going to lose his kingdom that way. But that's undermining the trust in the sovereignty of God who set up the kingdom to begin with. In other words, you're not going to lose your people. There's no reason to be faithless. Let them go worship in Jerusalem. You're not going to lose your people because I have set the kingdom up this way. And he doesn't trust that because ultimately they don't believe in God. They're godless people. And they're ultimately going to be judged for it in a couple hundred years. But when, when Rehoboam uh, put the people under, under uh, basically slavery, yeah. and, um, he caused that split. And, and sure. so I, I don't know. Um, well, and yeah. And yeah, I mean, Solomon was ultimately the beginning of it where he says in your, you know, I'll preserve it for your father, David, but once you're dead, it can be split. Right, yeah. Any other questions? It just seems hopeless for the people yeah. in the Northern Kingdom. Well, I mean, to some degree it is, right? Judaism itself was kind of hopeless in the sense that uh, they're, they're, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can never, you know, absolve, absolve them totally for, them, for their sins. So in that sense, they needed uh, still something more, you know, ultimately anyway, so... Yeah, and the application today is the fact that if you're, uh, say, you're 18 years old and, and you're born into a family where you don't hear, ever hear the gospel, the chances are like 1% that you could ever come to Christ. And, and so um, it's pretty hopeless for that. I was reading an article today, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, and they were saying that for the first time ever in polling, less than 50% of the people in the United States um, ha have any affiliation with it, either a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. Mm. And it's like, yeah, it's like 10% down from a decade ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Are there any other questions that we can, you need to ask before we go? All right, well, let's, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time that we can come together and look at your word. And I pray that, um, that as a for a reminder just to our own hearts that um, 
that we might be encouraged, even in a story as strange and, and wonderful as this story is, um, to not fall into the trap of that's still so common today of, of just blind, of spiritual blindness and allowing the things of this world to really uh, obstruct our view so that we lose sight of what our real goal really is to whether it be raise our children, rear our families, or direct our, even our own hearts. Um, I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us to do this. For every person in here, I pray that you would, um, and, and watching, that you would um, bring conviction where conviction is needed and encouragement where encouragement is needed and hope where hope is needed and repentance for all of us where we have stepped out of line and where we have failed to consider what your will for our lives really is in accordance with your word, I pray that you would correct us and that you would give us the gift of repentance so that we might be different and changed and that we might be able to look back at Second Kings 3 as the catalyst for that change for us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank y'all for being here online, obviously, and in person too. Good night.